0: Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Happy feast of all souls. J.D. Vance on issue one. The pro-life freshman senator from the Buckeye State has made a splash on Capitol Hill this year. He joined us to weigh in on the consequential abortion vote happening just days from now in Ohio. Plus, why he thinks keeping aid for Israel and aid for Ukraine separate is the best way to provide help to our allies in the Holy Land quickly as the war wages on. Presidential hopefuls. The field narrows in the Republican primary race for president. We bring you an update on what the candidates are saying about perhaps the most controversial topic they must address with the American people, abortion. A disturbing tie. We recently spoke with attorney Lisa Hava about the underreported connection between sex trafficking and abortion. We uncover how abusers rely on abortion to maximize their profit at the expense of innocent people. Next week, Ohioans will vote on a constitutional amendment that, if adopted, would dramatically expand abortion and do away with parental notification when minors undergo invasive surgeries. There's been reports of high voter turnout throughout the early voting period. Though pro-life advocates remain hopeful that Ohioans will vote no on issue one, pro-abortion groups have outspent them nearly three times over. And just this week, the pro-abortion group Catholics for Choice raised dozens of billboards telling people to vote yes. To be clear, a yes vote means voting to cancel all of Ohio's pro-life laws and to do away with parental consent measures that protect young girls from Planned Parenthood, the number one provider of abortion and one of the leading providers of dangerous sex change surgeries. We recently spoke to Ohio Senator J.D. Vance, who weighed in on issue one. We have that interview for you right now. Joining us now is the Republican Senator from Ohio, JD Vance. Senator, thanks for being here. You just recently spoke to many of your constituents at the Ohio March for Life, and you spoke about the importance of lifting up families, especially when they're facing challenges like an unplanned pregnancy. Talk to me about your message to uh, to Ohioans there.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And it was obviously a great a great event with a lot of energy there. Uh, the pro life community in the state of Ohio is very strong. And, and the and the point that I'd make, not just to the pro life community in Ohio, but all across the nation, is that in in this post Roe versus Wade world, you have a lot of young women, a lot of young families who are worried about unplanned pregnancies, who are worried about how they're going to deal with the financial burdens, uh, the unexpected costs, the you know the social pressure, of course, that comes up when when an unplanned pregnancy happens. And, and, I, and I've and i seen this operate in, in my own life in very personal ways. You know, uh, I, I knew a lot of young women uh, growing up in a, in a poor family mm. in the Midwest that that felt like they had to choose abortion when an unplanned pregnancy happened. Sure. And I think that we have to speak with a certain amount of compassion. We have to recognize that very often the choice to have an abortion is not one made because people don't like life. It's because they don't feel like they have an option. And I also think, by the way, that has to be our message to the pro-choice community as well. We have to say that very often this is not about freedom and this is not about liberty. This is about young women who are forced into a decision because they feel like they don't have another option. And I I think if anything in the pro-life community, we should be standing for the freedom to choose life. So that was my message. That's going to be the message we continue to hammer, not just over the next couple of weeks as we vote on issue one in Ohio. And I, of course, encourage everybody to vote no. But I think that's one of the important things we're going to have to convey as a pro-life movement, uh, that we care about young women, we care about young children, and we want to make it possible to choose life.
0: Yes, and of course, you alluded to this, pro-lifers across America are looking to your state as this extremely consequential vote on issue one approaches. Polling is looking a little bit grim for our side. What would you do, Senator, if issue one passes and that pro-abortion language is added to your state's constitution? I mean, what is the weight of this, in your view?
1: Well, I think, first of all, we have to do everything that we can to make sure that it doesn't pass. I'd encourage everybody in Ohio to vote no on issue one. This is a really, really radical pro-abortion amendment. Uh, It's not about reinstituting Roe v.ersus Wade, even though I think it was a good idea to, to do away with that. It's really about imposing abortion up to the moment of birth on on, on on all of Ohioans and forcing taxpayers very often to pay for it. That's not a good deal for the state of Ohio. But most importantly, I, I just think it's a great moral evil that most Ohioans don't want to sign up for. I think the problem that we have, to be candid, is that the pro-abortion side has been very effective. They've been very well resourced and they've really sold the story to a lot of voters in Ohio that we have to push back against. Now, now, you ask, what would happen if this were to pass. Well, I think, one, we have to recognize it would be a great tragedy for a lot of unborn babies in the state of Ohio, but we can't let a setback defeat us here. Uh, we're going to have them. I, I hope that we don't have one. I expect to have a victory in the state of Ohio uh, later this November, but whatever happens in Ohio, the pro-life movement will have setbacks. We, we, we did not win a victory on on Roe versus Wade overnight of course it took 50 years of organizing right. of advocating of preparing for that moment and i think whatever setbacks we experience over the next few years we should remember uh, that our cause is just that just because not everybody agrees with us doesn't mean we can't persuade them and that fundamentally the cause of life is the most important one that exists in our country. We have to keep on fighting for it.
0: Sure. Well, I appreciate your work to get out the truth about issue one. And, Senator, I want to focus on your work in the Senate for a minute. You're working diligently to provide aid to Christians and the Jewish people in Israel and Palestine. In fact, you and some of your colleagues just introduced legislation on this, and you're pushing hard for aid to Israel to remain separate from Ukraine. Explain to me why this is the best way to get aid to our allies in the Holy Land quickly, Senator.
1: Well, if you step back and just recognize the politics of this moment that we're in, of course, most Americans support Israel as I do. Uh, most Americans are a little bit more conflicted about what we should be doing in Ukraine. Uh, we like the Ukrainian people, but we're also worried about the corruption in that country, We're worried about an indefinite war, whether there's ever any a strategic end, whether the Biden administration has actually articulated how we're going to get out of Ukraine and save lives while we do it. And given that they are different issues, I don't think that we should allow the Biden administration to use the tragedy in Israel to get $60 billion for the war in Ukraine. They should be separate. They should be separate debates. Whatever your views on each, we should actually debate them and give the American people the opportunity to be heard that they deserve. Uh, and, and I think, by the way, it's it, we do a real disservice to our ally Israel and also to the American people when we allow the popular Israeli issue to be combined with the unpopular, uh, indefinite Ukraine issue. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we should play that game. I don't think we should allow Joe Biden to use Israel's political cover. It's a slap in the face to our allies And we ought to separate the packages.
0: Sure. Well, we'll continue to to follow that legislation as it moves. And, Senator, we have about a minute left. Before I let you go, I know you converted to Catholicism a few years back. Can you share about how your conversion has impacted your work in politics and really your life as a senator as you work to govern in a way that upholds our shared Catholic values?
1: You know, I I guess I just think of the fundamental insight that led me to Catholicism um, is the fundamental Christian insight that every human being has dignity. And I think that means we have to fight for good wages for people who work hard for a living. Uh, That means that we have to fight hard for the vulnerable. That means that we have to fight hard uh, for people who can't access health care because, of course, hard to live a dignified life uh, when you can't afford basic medicine. But that really means in this moment, I think, fighting for the unborn, the most vulnerable among us, the health care that they need, the legal protections that they need in order to live a full life. Uh, it, it really is when you sort of study history, you recognize that one of the great insights of the Christian faith, the thing that was really transformative about the Christian faith is recognizing that every single person deserved dignity. It was not the normal case, the normal way of doing things that we treated everybody with respect. Uh, that was a, a, a true Christian insight into our civilization. It's something that I think we shouldn't discard uh, because some people think that we should be willing to discard some inconvenient people, whether they're innocent children or anybody else, let's discard no one. Let's ensure that everybody has a good access to life. And I'd say that's, that's the Christian principle that most influences me as I go about my work in the Senate.
0: Amen. Well, we're grateful for your courage in the Senate and grateful you joined us today. Thank you so much, Senator J.D. Vance. And now, to more news moving our nation. 2024 will be here before we know it. It's a presidential election year, and the field is narrowing in the Republican primary race. Just this past weekend, former Vice President Mike Pence dropped out of the running. He says it's, quote, not his time. And people close to him said that Pence is concerned that a rise in populism among Republicans impacted the trajectory of his campaign.
1: Well, I have 100 uh, percent, thankfully, pro-life voting record. I'm 100 percent pro-life conservative. As president of the United States, I would sign very conservative pro-life legislation, and that's why we start with the 15-week uh, limit across the nation. We cannot allow states like California or Illinois to have abortion up until the day of birth. That is just wrong.
0: That was Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, another Oval Office hopeful who recently spoke with EWTN News Nightly's Eric Rosales. Like Scott, Ron DeSantis and Asa Hutchinson have expressed willingness to sign a federal limit on abortion at 15 weeks when babies in utero can feel pain. Nikki Haley also says she would sign a limit if it came to her desk as president, but is adamant that she thinks that's impossible due to the makeup of Congress and does not specify what kind of federal limit she would support. Frontrunner and former President Donald Trump is campaigning on the major pro-life victory he delivered to Americans by nominating justices who overturned Roe v. Wade, but joins other top candidates Doug Burgum, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Chris Christie in holding that stance that moving forward, the right to life should be legislated at the state level. Next, there's an update in the legal case against Yelp. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton is suing the company for attaching pro-abortion disclaimers to the info pages of pro-life pregnancy centers after the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Now, 16 pro-abortion attorneys general, led by California AG Rob Bonta, signed onto a letter supporting Yelp's decision to mislead people about the resources that pregnancy centers provide. The initial Yelp disclaimers read that pro-life pregnancy centers don't have medical professionals on site, despite the fact that they often do. The pro-abortion AGs insist that Yelp's disclaimers were clear and that it's pro-life pregnancy centers that are deceptive because they refuse to provide abortions. And in Kansas, a judge has blocked a pro-life law, the Woman's Right to Know Act. This law requires doctors to inform patients of the risks ahead of ending their child's life by abortion. These risks include links to breast cancer, psychological and physical distress, potential fertility issues, and more. The Women's Right to Know Act also requires doctors to tell women about abortion pill reversal, should they choose to take the abortion pill, mifepristone. But the Kansas judge has blocked this law, Given that Kansas's Constitution and Supreme Court have been supportive of abortion, he said that Kansas's legislators' pro life morals are, quote, necessarily curbed by the Kansas Constitution and its Bill of Rights. In his ruling, he also referred to abortion as a, quote, inalienable right. Coming up, a difficult conversation about the tragic link between sex trafficking and abortion. I recently had the opportunity to meet with attorney Lisa Haba and hear about her work to bring sex traffickers to justice. We'll have that eye-opening discussion next. You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our program. Around the world, millions of people are living in modern-day slavery. The organization Walk Free has published a global slavery index and estimates that more than a million people in the United States were trafficked in the year 2021 alone. Lisa Haba is an attorney who prosecutes traffickers and brings them to justice for their dehumanizing crimes. We recently sat down with Lisa and had a difficult conversation about the reality of this industry and how traffickers use abortion as a tool to control their victims. Viewer discretion for young children is advised. I'm here with Lisa Haba um, of the Haba Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining me, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. So your law firm focuses on helping women who have been sex trafficked. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the work that you do. Sure. Before
2: I was a private attorney, I used to be a prosecutor. And when I was a prosecutor, we used to prosecute sex crimes, crimes against children, um, sexual violence, and human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And what I started seeing a pattern of was that there's plenty of businesses out there that look at exactly what's happening, see it, understand it, know it for what it is, and just turn a blind eye to it because they would rather make money off of the exploitation of a person instead of taking steps to stop it. Mm-hmm. And we see that so often that we felt that there just wasn't a way in which we could continue down one path and not try to uh, tackle it from another angle. So in our law firm, we started a human trafficking division of our firm in which we bring lawsuits against businesses that knowingly traffic or pro- or profit from human trafficking.
0: Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of us often think about sex trafficking happening in places that aren't our hometown, aren't local to us, but just how prevalent is is the trafficking industry in the United States? Anywhere where drugs are being sold,
2: anywhere where hotels exist, anywhere where a human being could be with a guy that she doesn't necessarily know, which is pretty much every single community in America. Mm -hmm. Anywhere where somebody can look at another person and not see the value and dignity of that person, you're going to find human trafficking. Mm -hmm. The standard model, and of course there are so many variations of this, so I can't tell you there's like one size fits all by any means. But usually your classic sex trafficking scheme is going to involve a sex trafficker who, you know, the colloquial phrase everyone calls it is a pimp. But he's going to lure through, now it's a lot of online luring, they're going to lure people in. Um, they're going to target children a lot of times, but mm. any vulnerability can be exploited um, Just think about vulnerabilities for a minute the average age of recruitment for a person in sex trafficking at the beginning of their recruitment phase And they go for a long game oftentimes is 11 years old mm. Because they're vulnerable. They don't fully understand what this means and they can form a relationship with them in a way that would be Such that the child wouldn't recognize what's happening to them. So just give you a quick example We worked with a girl who was 11 years old. She started talking to somebody online who was actually an adult man, but he said he was a 13-year-old boy, Mm. and he just was a friend to her, and she didn't think there was nothing sexual being said, there was nothing inappropriate being said. It was just, when your mom's mad at you, I understand you. When your dad doesn't understand you, I understand you. I can't believe they would punish you for that. I can't believe you would feel that way. Your teacher doesn't get you. I can't believe you got detention. Mm. I get you. I'm your friend. I love you. And so by the time she was 13 years old, and puberty starts, and the hormones start, the vulnerability starts, this young child never saw it coming. But she was hopelessly in love with somebody that she thought was two years older than her. But at this point, there's such a great relationship there that when he said, I might be a little older than that, it was okay, right? Right. And so she started a relationship with this older man. And he started whining and dining her and lavishing her with gifts. And it got to a point where she's in love with him. And the next thing you know, he says, I just need you to do a favor for me we need money for us. And when I encountered her, she was many years older. She was addicted to heroin and was desperately in love with him, but also afraid of him.
0: I think that a lot of people, when they're confronted with situations so stark, is that they they don't know what to do first. Um, So what would your advice be to people who who encounter something like this and want to help someone get, get out of a situation like this?
2: So when you're I want to say, to answer that first, anybody who's living in human trafficking, who has lived experience of that way, they're living in a world that we can't comprehend. Mm. There's nothing that we can do unless you've lived through that yourself to understand the depravity that person has experienced. If you think about, we talk about a rape survivor who's gone through this, and not to minimize that at all, that's absolutely horrific and can destroy a human being's life. Of course. But it's happened thousands of times to that person. They've lost all sense of of self. They have lost all sense of the people around them. They have learned to obey instead of question. They have been beaten. They have been drug-addicted. There has been so much depravity and just dehumanization of that human being, they don't even know themselves. And so, when you encounter somebody like that, there is nothing that we are going to understand to help them. The key thing is, you need to bring them to the people that know how to work with them, which is going to be law enforcement to get them out, if they're ready, And it's going to be the service providers that are trained to help them, to help them heal. But I've seen many people that don't have that training try to help. Mm. And they either uh, get—they could could become part of a a crime scheme. They could get uh, in a situation where they think they're going to help and it's too much for them to handle. And when you take somebody in like that and bring in that trust and then say, I can't handle this, and put them back out, that does even more harm to that, that poor soul.
0: Lisa, talk to me a little bit about why you personally felt the call to establish this whole new branch at your firm to, to serve people who, who have been sex trafficked. I, when
2: I went to law school, I thought I wanted to be a, a police officer or go to the FBI. Mm-hmm. And I quickly realized, as I was in law school, that maybe that wasn't quite my path. Mm-hmm. I heard a, a speaker come to our law school, and she spoke uh, about human trafficking. She was a survivor, mm-hmm. and she talked about her journey and i've always been um, a faithful person my heart was completely turned that day and i remember thinking this is my path Mm -hmm. and so everything i have done moving forward i've always known i wanted to help women and children that have been through things like this i've always felt that was my calling Mm -hmm. Um, but it was very clear to me that day that this was what path god wanted me on and it's been his path ever since i just am walking alongside
0: lisa you talked about some of the ways that um that traffickers lure women in. Um, We've heard that abortion is often a tool that could be used by sex traffickers to keep, you know, exploiting these women. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure.
2: If you think about the model
0: that these traffickers are using to exploit
2: a human being, they're treating that woman like chattel. So the only thing that person and I, and I say women, I want to be clear, men and boys can be victims, too. Sure. Just in the context of abortion, it's always going to be a female. Right. So when a female is being exploited and sold, and that's a person that can be purchased over and over and over again, if there's a deterrent to them being bought and sold, that's money being lost by the trafficker. Mm. And so what they will do is sometimes, and as horrifying as it sounds, there is a fetish out there for pregnant women, and there are people that want to buy that. So if that is something that can be used for money, they will use it for money if the pregnancy is a deterrent to the clientele that they, that they bring in, they're going to end the pregnancy. And so abortion is a tool. Of an, an, it's an instrument which enables sex traffickers, and they need it, and to continue their operation. Mm. If they didn't have access to abortion, uh, they would obviously have a decrease in profits yeah. in, in certain circumstances. Mm. But the horrifying part about this is that there's kind of two sides to the abortion side. Many times if there's a free clinic, they will go in there It'll be, it'll be handled at the clinic. There's, they look for places that will keep secrets and not ask questions and keep the confidentiality low because they don't want any eyes or any questions being asked. Sure. If that's not available, we often see back-alley abortions happen, too, where I've seen it where high-profile traffickers who are extremely well-off well and have a lot of money have a private doctor come in mm-hmm. and perform an abortion. Um, you know, I've seen people lose their ability to ever have children, because an abortion was was done carelessly, and it's really destroyed a lot of the victims.
0: The work that you do is obviously very it's heavy, you know um, and the sex trafficking industry is so large and expansive. Um, could you offer words any words of hope that um, there's there's stuff being done to stop? This, this terrible, you know, atrocity that's happening in all of our cities, in all of our towns in the United States. I mean, obviously, the work you're doing is so important. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, absolutely, though. There is, there is hope.
2: Because 25 years ago, all we ever talked about was there was prostitutes, and that's all they did. And every single victim was coined to be a prostitute. Mm-hmm. And I think with the Me Too movement opening up a whole new way of looking at things, it's really changed the way that our society and our world looks at victimization and it's been thrilling to watch the change. So now, before—you know, when I first started at the prosecutor's office that I worked at, I was told that prostitutes needed to be put in jail for 10 days minimum, and we need to get them out of our county. And by the time I left, we were prosecuting their traffickers for human trafficking, and we were helping and giving these women services to help them get out and and get the services they needed to heal. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a paradigm shift. Um, And the other piece of it is that we're having this conversation now, right? And so all of, all of your viewers are thinking, what can I do to make a difference? And I really appreciate that.
0: EWTN News Nightly recently featured the Knights of Peter Claver and their mission to end human trafficking one door at a time. You can find that interview on our YouTube page as well. And you can find resources and more information from the church on how to help people who have been trafficked at usccb.org. Check out their anti-trafficking program page. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget, you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms. X, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. And if you're interested in more news from our nation and world, go to EWTN.com forward slash and sign up for our newsletter, the Pro-Life Pulse. And remember, on this All Souls Day, every life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.